0: I'm Jim Pullett.
1: And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, March 5th, 2013. And coming up on today's
0: show, Settling
1: Mars. Uh,
0: Brian Inky is our guest. Brian, who are the new Martians?
2: The new Martians actually haven't been selected yet, but uh, someday soon, um, maybe within the next year or two, uh, the first astronauts will be chosen. Uh, There are several groups working on this. And uh, so stay tuned to find out.
1: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: If you've ever smelled the sweet fragrance of the tiny lavender flower called alyssum, you know how refreshing this common ground cover plants can be. Now scientists at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland are launching a study that will give plants like alyssum a new job. It's to clean up land that's been polluted with poisonous metals such as arsenic and platinum. Toxic metals can lurk in the ground indefinitely, hurting people and animals. Plants like alyssum, ferns and mustard can draw those metals out of the ground using a natural process known as phytoremediation that turns the soil-based metals into metal ions. Once the plants have drawn contaminated material out of the soil, researchers plan to mow the plants down, take them to a biorefinery, then transform the volatile metal ions into more useful metallic nanoparticles. While nanoparticles are tiny, they can be combined to make catalytic converters for cars and chemical compounds to help with cancer research. It will all begin by blanketing a polluted area with ferns, or yellow mustard flowers, or the sweet little lavender flowers of alyssum. The study is funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council.
1: While it's well known that humans are heating up the climate, the Earth has not been getting as hot, as fast, as climate scientists have predicted. Yes, it's getting hotter, but in the last 10 years, climate models have predicted the average global temperature would be 25% higher than it's actually been. So what's been keeping a lid on the heat? Now a team led by CU Boulder scientists has announced that the global heat shield has been hiding in plain sight. It's a chemical called sulfur dioxide. Specifically, it's the sulfur dioxide that shoots skyward from erupting volcanoes. Brian Neely, who's with the Boulders National Center for Atmospheric Research, led the study. Neely says volcanoes spew out sulfur dioxide so fast and so high, a lot of it ends up relatively intact in the stratosphere, which is five miles above the Earth. That's higher than passenger jets. It's even higher than thunderclouds. Neely says it's a potent place for sulfur dioxide.
0: The
2: stratosphere is a unique environment. It doesn't have lots of weather like we have here, so things don't get rained out. And once it's up there, it actually is pretty hard for it to come back down. It is able to spread around, and become a global shield for incoming radiation
1: from the sun. Neely says that sulfur dioxide as a heat shield is strongest when the sulfur dioxide enters the stratosphere fast, before chemical reactions closer to the Earth's surface gum up its potency. And that is why another kind of sulfur dioxide has not been helping cool down climate change. It's the sulfur dioxide from coal-fired power plants. While volcanoes shoot out the chemical fast and high, coal plants only belch it out, neither fast enough nor high enough to get it into the stratosphere unscathed. In fact, the sulfur dioxide from power plants usually languishes in the lower atmosphere, an area called the troposphere. There in the troposphere, it mixes with other pollutants to make a nasty chemical stew.
2: Coal fired plants, sulfur dioxide contributes to things in the troposphere where we live that are bad for human health. And in that sense, they're not good. You know, having these dirty
0: coal plants around are pretty bad.
1: Neely adds that even though volcanic sulfuric acid has helped the Earth be a little less hot right now, we need to focus on basic strategies to lower greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. After all, volcanic sulfuric acid in the stratosphere is not all good. For instance, while it cools down global warming, it's also increasing the size of the ozone holes, and it's not exactly a dependable solution.
2: We really can't count on volcanoes either to keep saving us from changes in temperature because who knows when the next one will go
1: off. A paper on this topic of volcanic sulfuric acid and global climate change was published online last week in Geophysical Research Letters.
0: The men of earth came to Mars. They came because they were afraid or unafraid, because they were happy or unhappy, because they felt like pilgrims or did not feel like pilgrims. There was a reason for each man. They were leaving bad wives or bad towns. They were coming to find something or leave something or get something, to dig up something or bury something or leave something alone. They were coming with small dreams or large dreams or none at all. It was not unusual that the first men were few. The numbers grew steadily in proportion to the census of Earthmen already on Mars. There was comfort in numbers, but the first lonely ones had to stand by themselves. That's from Ray Bradbury's great 1950 collection of short stories, The Martian Chronicles. Today there are plans being made to send people to Mars, a fraughtful trip of a hundred and a half million kilometers and more than a year each way. Here with us to talk about whether we'll really see humans to the red planet in our lifetimes is Brian Inke. Brian is a senior research analyst at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, a member of the Mars Society, and the author of the 2005 science fiction novel about Mars, Shadows of Medusa. Welcome to How on Earth, Brian.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Brian, uh, I think our listeners, and certainly I... Uh, was surprised to learn that humans may be going to Mars a lot sooner than we think.
2: NASA plans to go to Mars uh, tend to talk about timescales in the 2030s. Uh, the timescale can be sped up quite a bit. Um, it wouldn't be just it wouldn't be simple but um, there are plan- there are groups that are um, looking at the mid um, 2020s. And I think that's quite realistic. Um, there are a handful of new technologies that we need, but uh, nothing that looks like a showstopper right now.
0: You know, I, uh, I think that, well, I'm certainly surprised to learn that maybe we already pretty much do have all of the technologies that we need to get to Mars. Um, you know, what, what don't we have that we need?
2: The one thing we don't have that uh, really makes it the, the time scale is a bit problematic, is that we don't have a good enough landing system for Mars. Uh, when NASA lands their rovers on Mars, uh, like the Curiosity rover, which just landed a few months ago, uh, they have to go through some pretty elaborate landing systems. And it depends on the mass of the spacecraft. They're very limited in mass. You, you can't land something that's very heavy. Um, we need a better landing system. When you're sending human missions to Mars, uh, human explorers, uh, you have an order of magnitude, greater mass that they're going to require. And so you need a much better landing system. Now, NASA is working on them, and it looks quite promising. In fact, um, they're probably going to be ready to uh, flight test some, uh, a new approach called an inflatable heat shield uh, within a couple of years. And it looks very promising.
0: So, uh, is NASA required to get to Mars now, or can private companies do this?
2: NASA is not required to get to Mars. In fact, one of the things that has held us back from Mars is that the political winds shift a lot at NASA. Uh, every so many years, they uh, kind of scrap their current plans and go off in a new direction. Um Mars is still out there. It's still waiting for us. Uh, We have to put a program together, though, that survives over a decade or two in order to actually reach Mars, though. And that has been a problem. You know,
0: uh, NASA's had a lot of uh, different kinds of objectives over the years. Um, You know, why should we be going to Mars and not doing one of the NASA objectives, like going to an asteroid first or the moon?
2: Well, the current plan at NASA is to go to an asteroid first, but only as a flight test, if you if you would say that, um, for going to Mars. So they are focused on Mars, but indirectly. Uh, in fact, they have always been focused on Mars, um, despite what I just said. It's just, as you said, there are different ways to get there. Um, do you go to the moon first? Do you go to an asteroid first? Um, do you go straight to Mars? Uh, a lot of debate in the space community about what's the best way to get there.
0: Well, people are getting impatient with NASA.
2: Yes, very impatient. And so you have a lot of private companies now that are branching off, getting firm plans in place to do it on their own. And the technology is not really the problem there. Uh, the bigger problem is the financing. It's hard to make a economic case for Mars right now because we just don't know what we're going to find when we get there.
0: You know, has there ever really been a solid economic argument for going into space? I don't know. The Apollo missions, I don't think, had a solid economic argument. It was for the betterment of mankind and of humankind, really.
2: Yes. um, You can make a lot of different arguments for going into space. Economics has always been one of the more difficult ones. However, it's important for us to keep in mind that space is already an over $200 billion a year industry. So we are already doing a lot of business in space. Uh, most of that is with communication satellites, for example, or, or um, things that are tied to military. Um, those markets need to expand. So you have a group of people who wants to take a progressive approach, a step-by-step approach into space where you would develop near space, um, build hotels in low-Earth orbit, for example, or do tourism around the moon or on the moon even. Um, then there are the people like me who look at that and say, well, um, that's fine. That could work, but it might be a better approach to step out into space first. Um, kind of build, if I can use an analogy from uh, the way that the American West was settled. You know, we need San Francisco before we need Denver. We need a destination for people to go to get them out into space. And once you're in space, there are um, options everywhere. It's just getting that foothold into space that's the problem. And that brings us to space settlement.
0: Right. Well, Mars as a destination is a somewhat different beast than, say, driving the rail line to Provo, right? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's a it's, it's a little a farther away. It's a, well, it's a quest shrouded, uh, you know, in, in a mystery and uh, part of our uh, myth of uh, who we are as people. You know, uh, these, uh, these Martian the settlers, uh, you know, who are they going to be? Uh, you know, are they going to be humans or are they going to be somebody else? I, I certainly would like to, to, talk about, to talk about that.
2: Well, I love your introduction quote from Ray Bradbury because it, hit, it hits on so many of the motivations that people might have for going out into space and for going to Mars. Um, one thing to remember about Mars is that uh, compared to all the other choices in the solar system, Mars is far more habitable. It will be easier for people to live there and to bring their hopes and dreams and aspirations with them. Mars is another planet. It's eventually going to be a second Earth, Uh, we would like to think, if you go far enough into the future. And it will probably be a wealthier Earth, given its proximity to the asteroid belt in the solar system. So there's tons of potential on Mars. Uh, But how do you take the first step? How do you build the first very small, very tentative settlement.
0: Well, let's skip over space hotels and stop by uh, stopping by the moon and so forth and so on. Tell tell us about you know the first settlements on Mars. Help us look into the future. Not maybe not the too distant future.
2: In the short term future, you have to think small. Uh, you have to think about a crew of three people, maybe six people, going to Mars, um, and. Living off the land as much as they can, Uh, but basically the main goal of the first few missions is going to be to learn. We need to learn about Mars. Uh, We have a lot of scientific knowledge about Mars now that has come to us from uh, orbital spacecraft, some rovers on Mars doing great science now. We know more about Mars than we have ever known before, but it's not enough for living there yet.
0: Now, we're talking about private citizens. We're not talking about colonels in the U.S. Air Force or captains in the Navy. Uh, These are going to be private citizens. They're going to have some discretion, right, about what they do when they get there, um, how they're going to live, whether they're going to come back. Um,
2: Correct. Yes, in fact, um, the whether they're going to come back question is one that has kind of held us up for a long time, I believe. It has uh, been blown out of proportion, I think, because if we go back to the Bradbury quote, you have people going to Mars, they are going to be the Martians, they're going to make their own decisions. We back here on Earth, before the thing even gets started, are a little pompous in thinking that we have all the answers or we can come up with all the answers. Those are the people that are going to come up with the answers.
0: Well, let's, let's go to those first colonies of a few people, um, let's imagine they've decided they're not coming back. Is that Well, first of all, is that a serious proposal? By some uh,
2: it's definitely a serious proposal because when you look at what it takes to get people to Mars, to live on Mars, and to return from Mars, the technical complexity and therefore the cost and the risk are all heavily weighted toward the back end. It's the returning back to Earth part that is... Um, probably eighty percent of the complexity.
0: That's just for that's just more or less to get off the surface of Mars back into orbit and then escape Mars. Uh,
2: yes, but also the re-entry to Earth too. Um, that's difficult. Uh, you have a six-month journey in between where you need to keep your crew healthy. Uh, the planetary alignments are such that uh, it would at least be several years that people would have to stay on Mars. And so launching them into space, getting them back to Earth for a six-month trip, and then having them healthy enough to survive a high-speed re-entry, all very difficult things. And remember, this would all be on hardware that has been out in space for many years. Uh, Some of the time it has not been maintained, so you have to have automated systems. Uh, There's complexity throughout
0: so let's skip bringing people back then. Let's say that our brave new Martians, and I, probably you might sign up for that. I'm not sure I would. They, they've they decided... <laughs> My wife won't let me. Oh, she won't, unless she gets to go, or yeah. not at all.
2: Uh, I don't think she wants to go. I'll work on her, though. She might uh, change her mind.
0: <laughs> so these, these brave new Martians, and now they are Martians. They're not coming back to Earth. Um, how do they build their settlement, and what's it look like?
2: The building of the settlement carries its own complexities probably the biggest factor in building the settlement is what local resources can you find on Mars and that's where a lot of the scientific research that we're doing is so important Uh, from what we've seen so far uh, we believe there are many places on Mars that have the basic chemical composition and basic mineral resources to support a small settlement but the most important resource is water Uh, the best places in terms of of energy happen to be near the equator, but if you look at locations near the equator, those tend to be places where it's harder to reach water. So there's a trade-off. And geography and location, 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 from the real estate people, well, they're right. On Mars, it's all about location. So we haven't found that magic location yet, but we're hot on the trail.
0: So... We're going to have a few people. They're going to be, one in, in shoeboxes on Mars. And um, when you decide you want to go get a, get a burger or something like that, when you get that itch, that cannot be scratched, right? And there are going to be lots of itches that cannot be scratched. Uh, how do you choose people who can, uh, and how long are they going to live there?
2: You need people with a frontier mindset. You need people that are not as into their uh, Starbucks coffee um because there won't be a Starbucks on Mars for quite a while. You mentioned burgers. Uh, burgers are really difficult. Maybe uh, tofu burgers. <laughs> uh, technology can do some wonderful things when it comes to food. You can have additives that can give you um, flavors to keep the diet interesting for people. Um, fish are, are easier to raise and to eat on Mars and the byproducts of fish are Uh, can go back into your life support system and be reclaimed in various healthy ways. So there's a lot of uh, people who think that uh, there will be a lot of uh, fish farms initially on Mars. Um, It's going to be difficult. You won't have many creature comforts. So again, the pioneer mindset is important to have.
0: We, well, you know, I, I think of our pioneers, they were kind of pushing into terra incognita, but it was still terra. It was still something that our species had uh, hundreds of thousands of years of experience with and our forebears uh, millions of years of experience with. And, uh, you know, I I wonder, is the human psyche ready uh, to, to live in such a, an alien place? And, and although it might be, Uh, Mental challenge and and, uh, sitting here. uh, It might look like a very intriguing opportunity Uh, How many years are they going to be able to do this?
2: Well one thing about Mars compared to again all these other possible destinations where people could perhaps live in the solar system is that Mars is more Earth-like so we do get a little bit of a boost to the psyche there by just having a planet under our feet. Uh, Mountain ranges, beautiful vistas, uh, beautiful spectacular sunsets most likely, clouds in the sky, wispy clouds, but clouds nonetheless. Um, The one thing we don't have that would really be nice is uh, a dense air pressure. So that's going to make it hard for people to go outside and run around and play. Uh, There are people working on very flexible spacesuits which could allow that I like to think of I'm a skier and I like to think of the changes in the ski industry over the past 20 years the technology that has gone into improving a skiers experience on the mountain in all these harsh conditions is just amazing uh, what you have now compared to 20 years ago you apply that to spacesuits on Mars People think of spacesuits as these clunky Apollo spacesuits. That's probably not what you're going to see on Mars. You're going to see something very flexible, maybe skin-tight, where people can move around much more freely and enjoy the environment more.
0: Well, and our Martians are not going to be alone forever, our three or four folks. They're going to be joined by others, right? How how often would they be joined by others, and how will the settlement grow?
2: Uh, The timing of the growth of the settlement is, again, another... Uh, very complicated uh, question because it depends on the local resources Uh, it depends on the motivations Uh, one would like to think that every two years when the planets align the best you would send more people to Mars, another 6 people another 12 people but the fact is that early on growing that settlement so that you can support uh, say 20 people, that takes a lot of resources right there So the first 20 people are going to be the hardest. Once you have 20 people in place, then you also must, by requirement, have an infrastructure in place that lets you duplicate your settlement. And once you reach that point, you can start having the settlers create the settlement. And then it just snowballs from there. So the first 20 people are the hard part.
0: You know, in a word, is this going to—is this really going to happen? I, and is it really going to happen? Are we going to see people on Mars in our lifetime?
2: Um, I think we will. Uh, it will not be easy, but I think we will.
0: Well, thank you so much. We've been talking to Brian Enke about whether humans are really going to go to Mars. Brian is a Mars aficionado and a member of the Mars Society. Works for the Southwest Research Institute here in Boulder, where he does planetary science research for NASA. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelly Schlinter, who also contributed headlines. I produce the show, and thank you, Shelly, for engineering today.
1: Our, our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Phyllis Glass, Philip Glass Remixed.
0: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
1: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Jim Pullen.